Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Diffusion Science Radio Show. Listen to this summer edition where we look at the science of years past. We go back to 2006 for the connection between vitamin C and sexual behaviour. In 2007, we look at how solar power can save the coal industry. But first, in 2010, researchers discovered that there are moves a man can make on the dance floor that make him more attractive to potential female partners. I spoke to polymath Matthew Hall and counsellor and hypnotherapist Melinda Hall-King for their wisdom on the human mating dance. Should men learn the moves discovered in the research? Should they have special dance lessons? No, I don't think it's about teaching moves at all because that's that's a very formulaic approach and you're only going to end i mean you're straying into the pickup artist territory here mm. where you're learning scripted interactions which, which don't, don't work well which don't work and they're a bit corny but more importantly yeah, yeah. more importantly they completely fall apart the second and third and fourth and fifth time you're exposed to them mm. right when you're using a scripted approach, when you, you know, so it's not about teaching a specific dance move. It's just about breaking down that inhibition, which is very strong in a lot of people, a lot mm. of guys, you know, when you're out there trying to meet people, pick up. But you're also at an age where you feel very self-conscious. Mm. And so it can be very hard to get over that inhibition and just say, bugger it, look, I'm, how about I try this alternative strategy? I go out onto the dance floor and just have fun. Mm. Dance like no one's watching. Not trying to pick up. Exactly right. Yeah, Dance like nobody's watching. it makes a watching. big difference. It it's really It's such does. a beautiful phrase because time and time again, you hear people talk about, you know, I met my significant other, my life partner, once I finally gave up on trying to pick up. <laughs> That's what happened to me. <laughs> I tried that. It didn't work for me. <laughs> but it, it is a story that recurs. You do hear it anecdotally time and time again. It would be fascinating to hear the research. When you stop trying, hmm. that's when you can dance like nobody's watching. And it's, so it's all about that mental state, getting out of that predatory mindset, and just like try no, actually next, having fun. There's an extra layer to that, though, I think. Because if dancing's not naturally part of your repertoire previously, mm. then you might not have that connection to the music to just have moves that come out of you mm. naturally when mm. you hear music. Oh, okay. So practice at home then. This is we're back to the dance like no one's watching. Go at home. Just as we were saying before, just have fun. Bust some moves. Look like a idiot, and and then get hey, to watch wa risky business. Yeah, that's you an know, old movie. Tom Cruise at home. You look, it's really corny, but there's that classic scene to old time rock and roll. Yeah. Right, where he's at home by himself and he's dancing in his underwear. Yeah. But he's dancing like nobody's watching. He's just busting out yeah. for the hell of it. And Tom Cruise is not a dancer. <laughs> no. Right? No, he's not. No, you're not showing any great dance moves at all. But yeah, take some inspiration from that. Just cut loose. Yeah. Just let you know, let your limbs actually <laughs> shake and move. Thrash around a bit. 
And if you're doing this at home, that's fine. But see, I but think you've got to get some experience at doing that first, and that can just help you to to, to open up and, and, and get a bit free. If you need some specific inspiration, sure, go and look at the Nutbush or go and look at the mm. the bus stop, something oh. like that, or basic line dancing. Go and join a line dancing class. You know, it's, <laughs> it's it's really simple stuff that everybody does together. So you know, you're not standing out. The focus is not on any one person at any time, but mm. it just it gets you moving in ways you haven't moving. before. Yeah, exactly. No, is, sure is that what you were? Would you... Sort of, because I think for a lot of guys, if they haven't done dance classes, yeah. and if, uh, if dancing's not naturally part, been part of their life before, no, and, and then they haven't got that. I mean, it's all very well so you'll just dance like no one's watching mm. and do it. But if you don't have that connection, which by this point for most people would be un unconscious, but if you mm. don't have the connection between the music and the movements, you'll hear the music mm. and you'll think it's good, but you won't naturally throw your arms up. Or move around necessarily very much mm. you have to I get that know. connection I, I reckon it's it's, it's fairly a... deep in our lizard brain yeah. you know humans have been making campfires and making music and dancing around them for a hell of a long time you know yeah. this goes all the Maybe way it's back just me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I... again it's about raising that inhibition there's a block in there yeah where yeah. you're thinking you've been socialized out of it There'll also be some people, of course, who aren't musical. There's a there's a tiny minority. Yeah, yeah, and organic sure. people and so on. Yeah, that, that, that's a very that's, small. So maybe that's not such a. See, I think. Yeah, I think you're overthinking it. You know, I think. And that's the problem with being <coughs> even Fred as Astaire. Smart as you are. <laughs> Fred Astaire was born. When he was a baby, he could barely move. He right. couldn't walk. Right. He couldn't walk. <gasps> he certainly couldn't dance. That poor man. I know. You know, he had to go. I through. bet he could barely talk either. <clears throat> no, like he'd had a stroke. That's dancing, right. Dancing is exactly the same as you know, learning to use your body in the first place. You look at a, a, a an infant, right? What they do is they sit there, they ran. Well, they don't sit. They lie down. They randomly twitch, and you can almost watch the neurological pathways being written. Yes, it as was they amazing. learn it is what amazing. this twitching does, and then they can sort of repeat it, and then they can start to move the limbs in roughly in directions they want. And there are, there are times when they actually try and they don't realise they have a hand and they try and grab the hand that they have with the hand they have. Um, and you can see that. And, it, and it's extraordinary. And they go from that to being able to walk and run and answer back. So is this yeah. along the lines of fake it till you make it? Yeah, absolutely. So Tend to dance, copy people, yes. while trying to listen internally for the connection between the, the rhythm and the way you're moving until mm. you just do it. That's right. Totally. You know, and well, I'm sure some people have rhythm and some people don't. Yeah. Well, look, when you're looking at children, again, we start from um, developmentally. Um, when they're very little, when they're you know, one or two, children will stand and they'll automatically move to music. They just will. Um, so if you have just a steady beat um, of, of anything, I mean even you know Poker Face, the the, the new song um, from Lady Gaga, um, there's a rhythm to it. Are oh, the kids these days? Yes, I know. Oh, get up on that, that noise they listen to. <laughs> uh, so, um, so if you're uncomfortable doing anything else, just start by swaying your butt to the to the rhythm. And that is how developmentally children start to dance. Children yeah. will start to dance by wagging their, by yeah, shaking they, their butt backwards and forwards to the rhythm. Absolutely. That's it. That's, you know, and, and all parents go through the, oh, look, they're shaking their bum, isn't that cute? Because that's how we start. If you're exposed to it when you're young, that's great. If you're not, you can learn it. Because we have amazing brains. And the, the, the synapses are constantly rearranging. So it just takes effort. 
but not much because as soon as you do it you as i said you get the endorphins and it builds on it and and every every little change is a change for the better for you for your self-confidence and for your mm. ability to not just look good on the dance floor but just look good when you walk down the street because you're more confident in your body um i've noticed you around i find you very attractive i've noticed you around um i find you very attractive Would you go to bed with me? Back in 2006, I asked, what is it that reduces your stress and anxiety and makes you sexier? What helps your heart and makes you slimmer? Dr. Brody discovered the strange connection between vitamin C and sexual behavior. I popped a vitamin pill and investigated with discussion later from Tilly Berlin and Catherine B. Hag. Dr. Stuart Brody reports that people who took high-dose sustained-release vitamin C had sex more often. Not just any sex, but only sex that could result in pregnancy. Even stranger, this effect was stronger in people who didn't live with their partner and in women. This was a randomised controlled trial over two weeks. According to Dr. Brody, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, lowers your sensitivity to stress, reduces approach anxiety which is how anxious you are about meeting people you find attractive, improves how well your blood flows and increases oxytocin release. Oxytocin is the cuddle and bonding chemical released during intimacy. All of these may contribute to making penile vaginal intercourse, or PVI, happen more often. Dr Brody suggests that the reason PVI sexual frequency went up and not any other form of sexual activity is due to evolution. Behaviour that improves the chances of reproduction are favoured over behaviour that's just fun. Dr. Brody's 2006 research has shown that the prolactin hormone that contributes most to making you feel sexually satisfied is four times higher from penile vaginal sex than from any other form of sexual activity. Our brains are more rewarded, and in fact, our physical and psychological health is better the more PVI we have, says Dr. Brody. Subjects in the study kept a daily diary of all their sexual behaviour. They also answered questions on the psychology gold standard Beck Depression Inventory and scored a better mood. People taking the vitamin C who lived with their partner actually had a slight reduction in how often they had sex. Dr Brody suggests that there is a different system in the brain for going out and seeking a sexual partner, as opposed to finding yourself becoming aroused and having sex with your partner at home. It's hard to explain his results any other way. You may wonder, as I did, what inspired this research? The work is sponsored by the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline, which, although they make delayed-release vitamin C, doesn't explain how he knew to look for a brain system of going out and finding a sexual partner. However, when I looked into his other research, it started making a kind of sense. The jargon has changed over the years from FSI, for full sexual intercourse, to PVI, for penile vaginal intercourse, but the work is very thorough and consistent. Dr Stuart Barodi is a professor of psychology at the University of Paisley, Scotland. He's also worked at the University of Tübingen, Germany. He's originally from New York City, and he's the author of over 100 scholarly medical publications. He's done research into AIDS in Africa, and he's been outspoken about the politics of AIDS research funding and policy. 
Dr. Brody started this path by researching the effect of high-dose, 3 grams, sustained-release vitamin C in reducing the effects of stress and lowering blood pressure in 2002. Acute psychological stress was induced from public speaking and being asked to perform mental arithmetic. It scares me. Later that year came this report. High-dose ascorbic acid increases intercourse frequency and improves mood, a randomised controlled clinical trial. You can see a logical progression here, from vitamin C and stress to vitamin C and sex. In 2003, he released a report showing that women's concentration and emotional communication were better the more often they had sex. In the paper titled, Alexithymia is inversely associated with women's frequency of vaginal intercourse. Dr. Gordon Gallup suggests that brain chemicals in semen may also be helping here. Epinephrine, vasopressin and oxytocin are all found in semen, and supplements are known to help learning and memory. Dr. Gallup's research in 2002 found that women who had unprotected sex were more decisive and had better powers of concentration. At the end of 2003, Dr. Brody published the paper Vaginal Intercourse Frequency and Heart Rate Variability, which, as you may start to guess, showed that more vaginal sex is good for the heart. In 2004, he reported slimness is associated with greater intercourse and lesser masturbation frequency. Yes, people who have sex more often are slimmer, and specifically only the kind of sex that might make babies, PVI. Are you starting to see a theme? In February 2006, Dr. Brody released his findings that PVI results in feeling less stress as measured by lower blood pressure during public speaking and other psychologically stressful experiences. In March, he published the report showing PVI is four times more satisfying than masturbation, as recorded in objective levels of the brain hormone prolactin released after orgasm. Dr. Brody has produced an amazing body of work. Vitamin C reduces stress. Vitamin C makes you more likely to go and find a sexual partner and makes you a little happier. Sex that could get you pregnant is good for the heart, makes you slimmer, helps women concentrate better, is four times more satisfying than masturbation, and has stress-reducing effects that are good for a week. While, if you're single, you might consider buying that attractive stranger a drink from the juice bar, maybe it has a whole 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C and maybe it doesn't. However, if you live with your partner, you might want to keep them away from high doses. And that was Ian Wolfe exploring the research of Dr Stuart Brody into health, and PVI sexuality, and can I just say, I have so many problems with so much of that. Ian, can we have a little bit of a group discussion? What would you like to ask? Well, why is it that you want to keep your partner away from vitamin C? I thought it was all great for everything to do with sex and happiness. Dr Brody's study found that people who lived with their sexual partner actually had a tiny bit less sexual activity than people who didn't live with their sexual partner. So he suggests that there's a different mechanism in the brain for having sex with the partner you live with and going out and finding sex. So he suggests that you're more likely to have sex with a novel partner if you have sustained-release high-dose vitamin C. What I'm curious about, and I'm sure the rest of the people listening um, are, is how many glasses of OJ do you actually need to have these PVI effect? Well, to get three grams... Mm-hmm. which is what Dr. Brody was talking about, it would take 30 glasses of orange juice because there's only 100 milligrams of vitamin C in a full glass of orange juice. And that's a lot are of we orange talking, juice. Are we talking daily juice? Are we talking those serious orange juices? We're, we're talking serious unprocessed. Orange farmers Australia-wide are wiping their brows and smiling. 
But of course, this is like any other sort of drinking. If you do too much, you're going to be running off to the loo. Apparently, Dr. Linus Pauling, who was a big advocate of vitamin C in the past, found that at really, really high doses, you have problems with diarrhea. So people are getting diarrhea. They're not getting lucky. No. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER. And over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Subscribe now. The Greens have suggested phasing out the coal industry. In 2007, I explained why burning coal is like burning hundred dollar bills. Coal is too valuable to burn. The myth the mining industry used to get rich is dig stuff up, burn it, and dump the waste out the back and forget about it. Forgetting about the waste has caused global warming. It's caused coal to be artificially priced so it's seen as cheap enough to burn. In reality, it's a valuable feedstock for the chemical industry that has a non-renewable supply. There are synthetic dyes, synthetic rubber, synthetic medicines, synthetic pesticides, not to mention thousands of different plastics, all made from coal. Oil is just liquid coal. Out of air, water and coal, we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Coal has been a cheap source of electricity because the cost of the pollution generated in mining it and burning it have been externalised. Externalisation is a word from the language of economics, the dismal science. Externalising a cost means that it's not factored into the cost of production and therefore not included in the price of the commodity. When your profit is solely because you've externalised your costs, then your commodity is not really profitable. Everyone now admits that the carbon dioxide in the air pollution from burning coal is causing global warming that leads to tsunamis, hurricanes, floods and droughts. The sulfuric acid causes soil to become acidic, which kills crops and trees. Acid leaching from coal into rivers and lakes kills fish. Acid sprayed into the air from burning coal burns us with acid rain. The soot blown into the air from burning coal blackens our lungs, clogs up our hearts and strokes our brains. The bad news for the mining companies is that we can no longer afford to allow the cost of pollution to be subsidised this way. Coal will have to be mined in a way that doesn't allow sulfuric acid into the water and soil, and it must only be consumed in a way that doesn't generate carbon dioxide, soot, and more sulfuric acid. Chemistry is creating new and more comfortable homes, giving you finer and yet vastly cheaper motor cars, better clothes, purer food, and sounder health. Unfortunately, the clean coal technology, pushed by the Australian and American governments, is fake. They're basing their whole rescue plan for global warming on a technology that will take the carbon dioxide pollution and store it in a barrel at the back, or underground, where it will inevitably bubble back up to the surface after it's forgotten. It's called carbon sequestration. This does nothing to stop soot or acid, and so far, nobody has demonstrated that it can work. Fortunately... Solar power generating technology has advanced to the point where solar power is now as cheap as coal-fired power plants have been. With solar power, there are no fuel costs, ever. Solar systems are building the world's biggest photovoltaic solar power plant in Australia's northwest Victoria. 
the pilot plant generates 154 megawatts of power and costs $420 million to build. It will power 45,000 homes. The power plant covers six hectares. Mirrors aim sunlight onto panels that convert the light directly into electricity. The light will be concentrated 500 times by magnifying mirrors. These solar cells convert 35% of the light into power, and they're able to withstand temperatures that would melt steel. The Hazelwood Brown coal-fired power station generates 1,600 megawatts to provide a quarter of Victoria's baseload energy. To replace it with a new coal power station will cost $4.8 billion. By comparison, 10 of the photovoltaic solar power plants would generate the same power for $4.2 billion. The coal-fired power plant has the disadvantage of needing $600 million of coal fuel every year. That's $4.8 billion for coal versus $4.2 billion for solar if you don't count the costs of pollution and fuel. Those who prefer to dig stuff up, burn it and sling the waste out the back justly complain that photovoltaic solar power stations don't generate power at night. When the sun is down, how could solar power plants light up the night? The solution is a solar thermal power plant. When you concentrate the sun to make really hot stuff, it stays hot overnight and keeps generating power all the way to sunrise. The plan is for the tower to store excess heat in water tubing under the tower and use it to heat the air overnight. Solar thermal power plants operate by using the heat from sunlight. In the solar tower, heated air blows in an updraft, the top of a giant chimney-like tower to spin a turbine. The turbine generates electricity using the familiar conductors moving past magnets used in coal-fired power plants. Enviromission is building a solar thermal tower not far away from the photovoltaic power plant, but on the New South Wales side of the border. The pilot project will generate 200 megawatts for a similar cost. Solar Heat and Power are working on a project to add sun power to the coal-fired Liddell power station in New South Wales. They use Fresnel reflectors to focus the sun to heat water into steam, which is then directed through the old power station to supplement the steam generated by heating water with coal. By cleverly using flat, cheap, compact Fresnel reflectors instead of curved glass parabolic mirrors, they've reduced the biggest cost in a solar power plant. You might be familiar with Fresnel lenses from children's pocket magnifying glasses. Instead of a curved lens, you have a flat plastic surface with lines pressed into it. The lines bend the light through diffraction to magnify the light instead of refracting it through a big round glass lens. In the same way, the Fresnel reflectors used in the Liddell power plant use flat flexible plastic with lines pressed into the surface that diffract the light to concentrate it. Instead of using curved parabolic mirrors made of metal and glass, the flat plastic is much cheaper and easier to manoeuvre. At present, the power station is a hybrid with solar steam adding a small amount of power to the power generated by coal. The solar power generated is about to go up from 7 megawatts to 38 megawatts. The coal generates 2,000 megawatts. Like the solar tower, Liddell Station stores excess heat underground for making steam to turn the turbines at night. Solar heat and power will be increasing the percentage of power that comes from the sun as funds become available. Eventually, it could be 100%. This means that other coal-fired power plants around the world could be retrofitted with solar collectors. The Greens are campaigning to replace all the coal-fired power plants with solar power plants in Australia. That's not a bad idea. They plan to phase out the coal industry in Australia altogether. The Greens are wrong about this, and here's why. This part of their plan has upset the mining industry and their friends in the government and put them against all solar power.
They rightly point out that their private wealth from digging up coal, burning it and slinging the waste out the back contributes to the economy. They also employ miners. They're wrong that this is the only way for them to stay rich, and they're wrong that the miners won't be able to find safer jobs doing something else. However, as long as they don't burn coal, and they develop a non-polluting way of mining it, there's no reason for them to stop digging it up as a feedstock for industry. From cotton, sour milk, formaldehyde and carbolic acid all scrambled together in the laboratory, come noiseless gears, costume jewellery, fountain pens, billiard balls, telephone parts, and many other plastics of beauty and utility. There's hundreds of things that can be made from coal, from plastics and dyes, to clothing, optic fibres, face cream for the ladies, special tasteless waxes for certain kinds of candies, wax for sealing letters, soap, fertilizers for the farmers, coke, ink, streets and highways. We have discovered how to manufacture rubber from coal, limestone, salt and water. Vinegar from coke and limestone. Coal also fits nicely in Christmas stockings. Coal is a limited resource that will run out, so whoever has a monopoly will be able to make a fortune. The Aladdin's lamp, which can produce an endless variety of valuable products. When it runs out, we'll have to synthesise these things from organic waste, such as sewage and farm waste. If we tried to grow them on plantations, we'd run the risk of mowing down rainforests in the third world. This has started to happen from the initiative to replace burning oil products in cars and throwing the waste out the back with burning ethanol in cars and throwing the waste out the back. Burning coal is like burning $100 bills. There'll be room for a coal industry for as long as the coal lasts, and they're willing to dig it up in a safe way. So the mining companies can breathe easy, and so can the rest of us. And that's all from us on this edition of Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com that's diffusion at 2SCR.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Matthew Hall, Melinda Hall-King, Tilly Boleyn and Catherine Behag. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.